I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles today. We'll be back in the epistle of 1 John, and we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 4. We are two-thirds of the way through uh, the epistle of 1 John, and I say this every week, but I wonder if it's been as big a blessing to you as it has been to me. 1 John 1, and we're going to be uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. But before we start... Uh, Today's message is going to deal with false prophets and false teachings. And um, I just wanted to start off, you know, we have a confession as a church. It's a confession that we ask all the members to agree with and to sign. And not only that, but it lays a base work of what we believe. And I want to read an excerpt from you from our Calvary Confession it reads as follows, We believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ, His Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our belief is not in an ideology nor in a religious system, but in the person of the living triune God, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son, born of the Virgin Mary, the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully divine and fully human. He is one in nature with the eternal Father and the eternal Spirit, the second person of the triune God. We believe in the Holy Spirit as the third person of the triune God, fully divine and one with the Father and the Son. Now these beliefs in our confession, they come to us directly from the pages of Scripture and from the apostles themselves as a matter, and the early church fathers. As a matter of fact, they're written across the pages by, of Scripture by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle John, um, by uh, the Apostle Peter, by James, uh, and, and as well as the writer of Hebrews. Going back to the first century, about 85 to 90... Uh, 90 uh, not, oh, boy. Going back in history to about 85 to 90 AD, the Apostle John in his gospel was the one who penned these words, John 1.1, which states that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And it has been the tenets of these things that have been challenged throughout history, and each time they have been challenged, the church rose again, affirming these things. In the year 322, responding to a massive uh, attack of heresy from Gnosticism and Arianism, we have what's called the Nicene Creed, and it was written in 322 A.D., and the Nicene Creed write, uh, reads as follows, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of being one with the Father. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. And there were other creeds that would continue, but perhaps two of the most famous ones emerged about 1,300 years later, after the Reformation. 
And the first one is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith or Catechism is a series of questions and answers designed to teach doctrine. And in the Westminster Catechism of 1647, question 5 asks, Are there more gods than one? And the answer is, there is but one only, the living and true God. And question 6 asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is, there are three persons in the Godhead. Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power, in glory. Several years later, the next confession that comes out is the London Baptist Confession. And what was going on in London is the Baptists in London were calling for the Church of England to reform further, to dispense more of the formality that had come in from the Catholic Church, and to go strictly to Scriptures. The London Baptist Confession is the framework from which we built our confessional doctrine. Um, and it reads as follows, In this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having a whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him? Now, even Jesus Himself, in Matthew 24, if you're with us on Tuesday nights, we're going through Matthew 24. But in Matthew 24, in what is called Jesus' famous Olivet Discourse, you might know it as, you know, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and so many others. But in this Olivet Discourse, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we find this in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, the Lord Jesus Christ himself warns, of false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets that are going to begin to proliferate throughout the history of the church and in particular excel in the latter days. And we certainly see these things happening right now. We've always had false teaching. We have always had false prophets, right? And, among, and, and false teaching first emerged, if you really think about it, it emerged in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan tempts Eve with a threefold temptation. First, he cast doubt on what God said. Hath God truly said? And he introduces doubt into her. Second, he denied outright what God said. You shall not die if they were to eat of the fruit. And third, he made a distortion to what God said to Adam. As a result, sin entered the world. Depravity entered the world. Mankind's race was permanently damaged as a result of that sin. Natural depravity came into the world. And false teachers and false doctor, uh, uh, doctrine has abounded since that time. And let me just tell you something. The goal of false teaching, the goal of false prophets, is to distort the gospel Amen. enough 
so that it is not the gospel. Let me tell you something. Another gospel is not the saving gospel. The only gospel that saves comes from the word of God. The only gospel that saves is consistent with the word of God. In today's text, in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to see John's admonition to every believer to test every spirit. Test every spirit. And he outlines for us in verses 1 through 6, three tests, three tests that every believer should apply to help us discern between false teachers and false doctrines. And the three tests are, number one, test their profession of Christ. Test their profession of Christ. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. The second one is test their possession of Christ. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. And the third one is test their possession of biblical truth in verses 5 through 6. So let's walk through the word of God. And as I always pray, I say word of God speak today that God would indeed be glorified. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John begins by telling the church not to believe every spirit. It's kind of odd today. You know, if somebody quotes from the Bible, I often hear many well-meaning Christians say, well, it's biblical. And what do we always say here, Calvary? What is king? Context is king. It's not merely what the Bible says, it's what the Bible means. And we discern that meaning by looking at the context that's being spoken. Gnosticism was gaining momentum, was gaining momentum. And Gnosticism had a good religious look and feel to it. And people were being persuaded. Just to give you an idea, I want to share with you certain things about Gnostic belief. Because this is the center of what John is addressing here in 1 John. First of all, according to Gnostic belief, there is a great God that is good and perfect. But he is impersonable and unknowable. And the creator of the universe was actually a lesser God. And the creator of the universe could be considered a cheap knockoff of the one true God. And he wanted to create a flawless and perfect material universe. But there was one problem. He botched the job. So this lesser God kind of screwed up. And as a result of that, instead of ending up with paradise, instead of ending up with a, a utopia, what happened was a world that was inflicted with pain and misery, intellectual and spiritual blindness. And consequently, all matter became corrupted. This is an important point for the Gnostic. All matter. You and I are matter. All matter became 
corrupted. It became inherently evil. But this lesser God, when he created mankind, he accidentally imbued in humanity with a spark of the true God spirit. So when he created humanity, he made a mistake, he slipped up, and the real God spirit, a portion of the real God spirit, was infused into mankind, making man inherently good, a good soul trapped in an evil, wretched, material body. You see, Christianity and Gnosticism are incompatible. The Gnostic is pursuing goodness. He's pursuing goodness. He's pursuing what he thinks is God. But instead of seeking to be regenerated by Christ, he grabs a hold of a man-centered purpose for living. Gnostics made man wise in their own eyes as the scripture forbades. And if you look back to it, if you look at some of the religions that are out in the world today, it's very much the same. What, it, what, what are most religions saying today? Man is inherently good. He's inherently good. And he just needs to be guided. He just needs to be pushed in the right direction because inside of man is something that is good. So if he does a, good, a number of good works, he will be made right and he will be justified in God's eyes. Right? Most of the religions except historical biblical Christianity teach that. Historic biblical Christianity teaches that because of the fall, because of what happened in the garden, man is not good as it relates to righteousness. It doesn't mean that every single human being is as bad as they could be, but when it comes to God's righteousness being made right in God's eyes, Man is inherently corrupt. Hence, man needs a Savior. And thus, Jesus Christ. So we see this. Gnostics, therefore, think about it. They had a form of religion. Gnostics, therefore, proclaimed. They proclaimed a God. They proclaimed a lesser God. They proclaimed a spirit. And they proclaim the supposed path to salvation. Sounds good, right? Amen. Wrong. The God they profess, the God they believe, is not the God of Scripture. The lesser God that they proclaim is not Jesus Christ, able to save. And the path to salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but through good works. As I stated earlier, Satan not only wants to oppose the truth, but Satan wants to pervert the truth. And that is an important point for us as believers. False teachings are, listen, are not just crafted by poor, you know, untrained teachers. I want to be crystal clear about that. But they are crafted by demonic forces. Demonic forces who have are experts in human behavior, the observation of human behavior. And their goal is to distort. Their goal is to manipulate. Their goal is to ruin the pure and holy gospel. 
And this is what John is uh, uh, speaking about. Test the spirits. See if they are of God. Test their profession of Christ. And here's the first thing that we take a look at. Number one, the test that John prescribes is whether they confess. Now that word, I want to draw your attention to that word there, confess. That word confess means to agree with, to voice the same conclusion. That's what it means. That I agree, I am in agreement, I, I, I confess, and I am in full of agreement in full agreement the confessional documents that we reviewed all confess they agree with one another a scriptural view of god a scriptural view of christ and a scriptural view of the holy spirit but he tells us that we are to test every single one and notice what he says in verse 2 by this you know the spirit of god notice this Every spirit that confesses that Jesus uh, Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Notice he adds that has come in the flesh. Why? Because they believe that the flesh was evil. Therefore, Christ would never, God would never come in the flesh. God would never take resonance in evil matter. And so the first test is test their profession of Jesus Christ. And their profession was, is he come in the flesh? And the answer to the Gnostics was no, they did not. And so immediately a flag should come up. And the same thing is true of believers today. We are to test every spirit. The spirit is contained in the doctrine. The spirit is contained in what they believe. We are to test them. Is this speaking of the Christ of the Scriptures? Does this speak of the Christ of the Bible? Does this speak of the salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And if it does not conclude to that, then we are to say, that is a false teaching. Let's take a look at the, the second test. Let's test their possession of Christ. Look at verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you heard that is coming and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Gnostics did not believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. To them it was an impossibility because all matter is evil and the human body is matter. Therefore God would never take on flesh and blood as Christ did. Therefore their doctrine does not agree with apostolic teaching. I mentioned to you that our Calvary confession comes to us from the apostolic teaching across the pages of history where it is formed. Clearly here in the first century, Gnostic teaching was not in conformity with what the apostles were teaching. For instance, John spoke about this in 1 John chapter 2. Turn, turn back one page or two in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. 
Look at verses 22 and 23. John's already made this statement. John says, Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. I want you to note something in the verses. Notice that the Father and the Son go together. He doesn't say you have the Father, but you could deny the Son, or you could have the Son, but you deny the Father. He says of this truth that Gnosticism was proclaiming, whoever denies that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ. He's God's anointed. He is the Messiah. Whoever denies that, denies the Father and the Son. There is no knowing God apart through Jesus Christ. And I want you to note something. Note that this test is centered around the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's centered around the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Notice that the Father and the Son are linked together. So how did the early church and Scripture divine Jesus Christ. That means we need to understand the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning with verse 15. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae writes this. Speaking of Christ. And he, by the way, I want you to notice in your Bible a capital H on he, right? And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created by him, and for him. Now I want you to note a few things in there. Look at that verse. He is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word for that word image is ikonos, where we get the English word icon. It means exact replica, uh, or an exact replication. So he says that of Christ, he's the exact replication of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. First form, by the way, does not mean chronology. It has nothing to do with chronology. First form is a term of preeminence. What he is saying, he's the exact replication of God. He is the preeminent one. Yes, he is the firstborn one. Yes, he goes on to say, all things were created by him. Oh my goodness. Everybody's got no Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. And what did God do? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul says of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authority, all things have been created by him and for him. I don't have time to process it, but you read Genesis 
chapter 1 and 2 and you see this glorious synchrony of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation. And the question has to be asked, is this the, the Jesus Christ that the Gnostics believed in? And the answer is an emphatic no. Corresponding and, and relating to this is the writer of Hebrews. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Corresponding to this is the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, he writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophet in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. There's confirmation just of what Paul wrote in Colossians. And here he says in verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high, having become as much better than angels as, that, as he has inherited a more excellent name. Once again, it is reaffirmed that through Christ he made the world. But there's something else here in verse 3. Notice, he is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. If it could be said, we would probably put it this way today. He is of the same DNA of God. He's an exact duplicate. Now, I was sharing with some folks earlier this morning before service. I said, I am not of the exact DNA of my father. I am not. I have some of my father's DNA in me, but I also have my mother's DNA in me. So you and I, we're hybrids. We're hybrids of perhaps multiple generations of folks that have come in and we carry some of those DNA traits. But of Christ, it is said, he is the exact representation of God's nature. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the, he is the glory of God's glory, if you would. Christ screams God. He's the exact representation of his nature. Notice what else he does. He upholds all things. All things are upheld by Christ. And I love that last sentence. When he made purification of sins, he sat down. What did God do on the seventh day? God rested. What did Christ do when he made purification of sins? He sat down. He took his seat. Sins, atonement had been made. The work has been complete. Listen to Paul's descriptions in Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I love this, this portion of scripture. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Just had a blast when we were going through our Bible study, verse by verse, studying the kenosis, what's called the kenosis, Christ emptying himself. 
Look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. And I love this verse. I'm speaking on this verse tomorrow at Sermon Audio, and I am fired up already about it. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now back in chapter, uh, verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the church of Philippi, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. But notice, Paul continues and says, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There's worship. Jesus is to receive worship. Every knee shall bow. Of those who are in heaven, there go the angels. There go the redeemed that have passed on to glory. So every Every knee in heaven is going to bow on earth. There go those that, that remain, right? And notice he says those under the earth. There go the, the demonic forces and those that, that are in Hades. But notice something. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does confess mean? They agree with. Every tongue will ultimately agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I want to tell you something about that word Lord real quick. That word Lord is in the Greek. In the Greek, the word Lord is kurios. Kurios is that word. But it is synonymous with the Old Testament term Adonai. Adonai in Hebrew means sovereign one, exalted one. So what's the name that God gave above all names? It's not the name of Jesus. Jesus is his earthly name. Jesus is the name that he identifies with humanity. What is Paul talking about here? He says every tongue is going to ultimately confess that Jesus Christ is Adonai. Jesus Christ is the sovereign one. Jesus Christ is the one to whom all bow. Jesus Christ is Lord. These texts and so many other texts that we cover speak of an exalted Christ. A creator Christ. A Christ that is worshipped by angels, worshipped by men, worshipped in the church. A God who is one, uh, one God, comprised the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The blessed three in one and the mighty one in three. Gnosticism did not confess or agree with this Christ. And there are many religions out there that speak of Christ that is not the Christ of the Scripture. In Islam, he's known as Isa. And he was a mighty prophet, mighty indeed, and a man of God, but he failed to fulfill the will of God. 
And so you have people screaming, oh, we all worship the same God. No, we don't. And we all don't worship the same Christ. No, we don't. And just like the Gnostics, Allah in Islam at the final judgment is going to use this Christ to kill Christians and Jews. And at the culmination of the age, there isn't a Muslim on earth that can know for sure that he has eternal life. Why? Because God will make the determination by looking at your good works versus your bad works. Boy, that contradicts with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Where the Apostle Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But Christ made you alive in him. For by grace you have been saved. It is only biblical, historical Christianity that says God could take a wretch like me and transform him and be made just because God poured out upon his only son the punishment for my sins. Therefore, it's nothing that I did. But it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the historic doctrine. This is the doctrine of the church. This is the gospel handed down generation by generation by generation. And we are seeing in this day the gospel being obliterated by those false prophets that exist in the day. Look at verse 4 back in 1 John chapter 4. Notice what he says here. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Contextually, the you that John is referring to are those in the church. Those who are the saved, the believers in Christ. John is writing the churches to provide them warning about this false doctrine. Therefore, because the words that John is speaking are divinely inspired, they're God-breathed, listen, they apply to believers of all times. So if you are a believer in Christ, if you have been saved, if you have been born again in Christ, then this applies to us. True believers are indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit. And I praise God for that. Therefore, it is the Holy Spirit who Jesus said is the Spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, the one who affirms wrong and right. As such, believers in Christ have the ability to discern between truth and and error. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, speaking of this discernment, he writes this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This is spiritual discernment. We, believers, 
have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God. Paul writes in Romans, Know ye not that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead? Somebody tell me the end. Know ye not that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, what? Dwells in you. When you're born again, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And let me reemphasize, when you are born again, when you are saved, when you have repented from your sins, when you have turned from sin and turned to Christ, when you have come to the place of the cross where you say, Lord, I surrender everything. I can't do this anymore. Lord, I surrender to you. When you get to that place, when you are saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And John, speaking of this back here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he says this. John states in verse 4, You are from God, little children, and you have overcome those false teachers and that false teaching. And you are victorious over them. Listen, this conquering, I want to be clear with this, this conquering is not done in and of our own strength. We do not have the strength to overcome. But through the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us, He is the one who gives us victory. And take a look at verse 4. He says, you are from God and having overcome them. And notice what he says. Because greater is he that is in you. Notice, he's in you. Than he who is in the world. If you are saved, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and hopefully filled with the Holy Spirit, then inside of you is the Spirit of God. You know, we're studying the end times on Tuesday night, and we haven't gotten there yet. I think I alluded to it earlier when we were going through portions of the rapture. But one of the great things concerning the end times is that Christ is going to come first for the believers. He's going to come for the church. How is he going to know who the believers are? Well, number one, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I don't think there's going to be a roll call. Okay, letter M, okay, let's see, uh, Mike and Mary and, you know, Mark. How is he going to know? Paul says the moment you believe you were sealed, that word sealed means like a Roman seal, a wax seal, was put on your head, and it indicates you're a believer. Yes, sir. And when... There is going to be a trumpet blast and there's going to be a shout of the archangel and the dead in Christ are going to rise. Those with the seal of God, these are my children. Those with the seal of God are going to raise. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to be caught up. We're going to be literally, it literally means we're going to be snatched. That's literally the interpretation. We're going to be snatched up. We're going to be taken by force. That's what snatch means in the Greek. We're going to be taken by force, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. 
You notice it's not going to depend on what I say. It does not going to depend on how I live. It depends whether I am in Christ or whether I am not in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are stamped. This man, this woman, this child belongs to God most high. And I don't know about you, man, but I can't wait for that day. Lastly, in verse 4, we see that the Lord tests their profession in verses 1 and 2, tests their possession of Christ in verses 3 and 4, and here's the last test that he applies here. Test their possession of biblical truth. Notice what he says in verse 5. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Now, first thing we got to do is define what does he mean by the world. What he's referring to is cosmos, which means the world system. Who owns the world? Who is the ruler of the world? Well, it's the power of the prince of the air, Satan. Notice what he says of these false teachers that were advocating the Gnosticism. He goes, notice this. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. You know, many false teachings and many false prophets can contain a smattering of proof, of truth. You know, you can have a false doctrine that is 90 95% biblical and 5% unbiblical. What do you do with that? You throw it all away. You can have a glass of pure water and it can have nothing but a few drops of arsenic in it and it would look clear and it would look cold, but you know if you drink it, you're going to die. It's the same thing with false teachings. Remember, what the enemy wants to do is not so much obliterate the complete truth as much as malign the complete truth so that it cannot save. Most of the distortions twist, twist the truth in such a manner that the way of salvation is malign. And without being born again in Christ, no one can be saved or born again. It is this truth that is the only way. It is the gospel truth which is the only way to salvation. Listen, that's not me saying it. John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father, what? But by me, through me. He is the path to the Father. Listen, the gospel is narrow. The gospel is precise. The gospel is preserved in God's word. Every jot and tittle, every single word in the word of God. Why? That many would come to repentance and faith in Christ. However, many times false teachers remove the offense of the gospel along with the way of the gospel and the truth of the gospel so that 
the way of the gospel is completely maligned. And notice what he says. I, I, I like this. Notice this. Because these false teachers are of the world, they resonate with the world. The world hears them. The world pays attention to them. The world likes their message. They are validated by the world. They're even loved in the world. And notice the difference between that and historic biblical Christianity, which is hated by the world, which is hunted by the world, which is persecuted in the world. Jesus never said, hey, you're going to preach these words, everybody's going to love you, and they're going to just circle around you, and you're going to prosper, and you're going to do this. No, what did he say? In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. They're going to hunt you. They're going to kill you. They're going to persecute you for my name's sake. But blessed is he who overcomes and holds fast until the end. Those preaching biblical truth and the truth of the gospel traditionally or generally do not draw big crowds. All across the world, they're meeting in homes and caves and barns and in the woods. They're being pursued by governments hostile to them and day by day fight for another day to worship God. Last week we gave out a free book to everybody in attendance. And it's all the true accounts of Christians being persecuted across the globe. I hope you picked it up. I hope you began to read it. You will marvel. And if you didn't have them, we have them in the back today. We can get them for you today. They're there. You will marvel at people who are being persecuted, people who are being killed for the sake of the gospel, but their joy never diminishes because they are rooted and grounded in Christ. Listen, Gnosticism will go on to increase in influence into the second and third century. And let me share something you, with today. There is a huge resurgence resurgence of Gnostic teaching that is penetrating the so-called church penetrating the so-called church there are teachings that speak of christ being a lesser god of man becoming little gods there are teachings of christ's fallibility and man's infallibility there are churches that demonstrate strange phenomenon and supernatural events prophetic prophetic utterances signs and wonders all these strange rituals that are deceiving many into the kingdom of darkness. That's what it's doing. And listen, they do all of this in the name of God. This was going on in the first century. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 through 15 wrote this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Notice what he goes on to say. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Listen, false teachers are not poorly trained folks who mishandle the word of God. 
Rather, they are deceived individuals, deceitful workers, false prophets that are being led on by demonic spirits and doctrines of demons. If you don't believe me, just read 1 uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul warns Timothy, guess what? In latter times, they're going to infiltrate the church. They're going to infiltrate the church. Look at verse 6 of 1 John chapter 4. We are from God. He who, knows, uh, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to the, us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Once again, John the we there is referring to believers in Christ, those in the church. And he reminds believers to follow on in the apostles' teaching. Follow on in the apostles' teaching. And that is contained in the Word of God. And we, here at Calvary, we follow in the tradition of the apostles, of the early church fathers, of the fathers of the Reformation, and we hold to these truths. And to us it does not matter whether new emergent teachings, whether they come from the 1700, 1800, 1900, 2000, or beyond if they are not in accordance with the apostles' teaching, if they are not in accordance with Scripture, if they are not in accordance with the historical, biblical Christianity, then we disregard it as not being from God. Notice toward the end he says here, he who knows God listens to us. Very few people listened to the Apostle John, which is why they attempted to kill him. Pretty amazing story, but they heated up a cauldron of oil, threw John in, and he never burned or consumed. So they didn't know what to do with him. So they subsequently said, well, let's exile him, and they exiled him to the island of Patmos. But John uses a word here, one of his favorite words, and that is K-N-O-W, knows. And again, we've seen this word time and time and time again in John's Gospels, right? Which is experiential knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. Believers perceive, they apprehend the Word of God. Not merely by intellect or by experience, but by the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And because believers know the truth, believers are able to discern between what is true and what is false. So we see here in this chapter there were three tests that John recommends. Number one, test their profession of faith, their profession of Christ. Number two, test their possession of Christ. Are they living Christ? Are they apprehending Christ? Are they walking in faith? And number three, test their possession of biblical truth. It is absolutely essential in this day that as believers we apply these three tests because there's a lot of, quote, Christians out there and there are a lot of people professing a Christ and a God who is not a Christ of the Scripture. So how will you know? Number one, the Word of God. That's number one. What do they say? 
Is it in conformity with the Word of God? Is it not in conformity with the Word of God? But more important, how will you know? Is you must get right with God. You must turn from your sin. You must cry out to God for mercy. You must surrender everything to Him and come and be saved. You say, saved from what? Saved from sin. And you say, oh, you don't know me. You, how dare you call me a sinner? No, I call me a sinner. But all of us, the Bible says, like sheep has gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. The prophet Isaiah begged the people of Israel, speaking for God. He said, come, let us reason together. Isaiah 1.18 Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins be red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to Christ? And have you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? The Word of God says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name, given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. And the word of God admonishes us in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We thank you, Lord God, for the substance of your word. And we thank you, Lord, for discernment between truth and error. I think the psalmist said it best, Lord, thy word I hide in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Lord, teach us to hide thy word in our hearts. Teach us to apply these tests, Lord. To test the, their profession of Christ and their possession of Christ and their possession of biblical truth. Raise up for your glory, Lord, men and women after your own heart. Right here, God, right here. Raise up men and women who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who desire you, Lord. And the proof of that is going to be their pursuit of you, Lord. Raise up men and women, Lord God, that seek to magnify you and glorify you and to exalt your most holy, blessed name, Lord. And Father, if there are any here, Lord God, who at this very moment have fallen under the conviction of your precious Holy Spirit. Father, soften their heart, open their eyes, and draw them to Christ, we pray. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
and amen.